Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam Conrad, an unfucking insane level member of the show. And today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro Bookstore Kim. Psst. Hey, unfuckers. Good to be back in your earbuds. Lots to go over in show notes today, like how unfuckers sold us out of every blend of unfucking delicious coffee at unftr.com. Many of you said how much you appreciated hearing from Amy and Harry Wallace from Puspatuck, and I'm so happy that we were able to introduce you to them. There's also a slew of new members to the show from buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR now that we've announced new membership tiers, none of which, none, include bonus content because we promise to always keep our content free and ungated. And I can't believe it, but our one-year anniversary episode is coming out next week. Do we get a bonus? Yeah, we should totally get a bonus. Um, new podcast, Who Dis? Anyway, we'll get to all of it later on, but for now we're diving back into the world of economics to talk about a policy of sorts that will help set the stage for several future episodes and tie in some prior themes as well. And at the end, I'll give you my take and offer a twist on conventional wisdom. Now, earlier this year, the field of economics lost a rather significant figure, John Williamson was a highly regarded economist and senior fellow at the prestigious Peterson Institute for International Economics, but he's best known as the author of the term Washington Consensus, our subject for today. So why this and why Williamson? Oh, because you haven't bored everyone to death yet, so you're back to finish the job. Thank you, Manny. Just as constructive as ever. No problem. You're welcome. The Washington Consensus is one of those concepts that has been bouncing around policy circles since Williamson first presented it in 1989. We'll unpack the details of it as well as the thoughts behind it, but let me start by saying that in terms of Williamson's career, the Washington Consensus is to him what Groundhog Day is to Stephen Toblowski. Ned! Ryerson! You know that guy has 277 IMDb credits? I mean, he was in Deadwood, Memento, Thelma and Louise, Mississippi Burning, and yet he'll always just be Ned Ryerson in our hearts. The point being, Williamson was no one-hit wonder, and he was neither a consensus economist nor a dogmatic one like Uncle Fuckbreath. But the term he coined and the tenets behind it were pretty important at the time, and have been politicized and debated at great lengths in policy circles. Much like our discussions on neoliberalism and the free market monetarists that came out of the Chicago School, the Washington Consensus has deep meaning in the psyche of world leaders, policymakers, and economists, and it has similarly fallen in and out of favor over the years. So we're going to move through the points that comprise Williamson's ideas and contextualize them within past conceits through to a more modern framework that will help us understand certain decisions that were made by OECD countries, the changing role of central banks, and why the most progressive economic policies should actually be regressive in the coming years. Oh shit, did you hear that? Hear what? The sound of 10,000 unfuckers closing their podcast apps all at once. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast it's just what the world needs he started a Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Today on Fuckers, we're going to tie in multiple themes from prior episodes. So our helpful building blocks for today are Fuck Milton Friedman, the beatification of Ronald Reagan, modern monetary theory, and the building the climate industrial complex episodes. As always, not necessary to revisit them or listen before this, but just helpful links in the chain. Last week in our LGBTQ episode, we referenced the Stonewall in protest and talked about how it plays an important part in the LGBTQ movement but also that it's equally important to note that this wasn't the beginning of the movement, but a crescendo of sorts, the culmination of courageous advocacy and activism and the moment that it burst into public consciousness. In economic policy circles, the Washington Consensus is viewed in similar terms, as though it was a new idea and statement of principles that caused a paradigm shift in economics. In reality, it was an observational statement crafted by Williamson to reflect an already assumed consensus and not one that needed to be achieved. 
In this, Williamson wasn't advocating for a certain point of view as much as he was acknowledging what already existed. Williamson's paper was presented in 1989, and the timing is crucial here. It was the beginning of the end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall came down in November of that year, the United States was fully in the grip of the Chicago school policies that were adopted and expanded throughout Reagan's term, and Alan Greenspan was the chair of the Federal Reserve. The EU wasn't yet founded, NAFTA had yet to be enacted, and China was still in the relatively early stages of its quasi-market economy transition. The Russian Empire was collapsing, and Latin America was in what it termed its lost decade. The new breed of capitalism proponents with the fervor of the prevailing neoliberal dogma had taken over. Keynes was dead. Milton was alive. The world, it seemed, was ours for the taking. Our prevailing free market ideology in 1989 that purported to help developing countries rise up out of poverty was about as authentic as the top performing artist of this same year. Girl, you know it's true. It was against this backdrop not Millie Vanilli, but the 1989 backdrop, that Williamson dropped his paper and the term Washington Consensus was entered into economic nomenclature. So let's first walk through the top-level points. The very broad framework was to liberalize centrally planned economies by opening them up to the free markets, privatizing public works and entities, and cutting public spending, basically turning them into economic feeder systems for the United States under the auspices of economic liberalism and liberty. Recall from our Fuck Milton Friedman episode that the Chicago economists, such as Uncle Dick Noggin, considered themselves liberal. So when we use that word in this context, that's what we mean. Liberal, in their sense, meant free and open markets. And the subject in Williamson's paper, by the way, is the whole of Latin America, which we'll unpack a bit in a moment. Anyway, there are 10 main points. 1. Lower borrowing to keep debt-to-GDP ratios low. 2. Move away from subsidies to long-term investments like education, healthcare, and infrastructure. 3. Tax reform to broaden the tax base. 4. Allowing interest rates to be determined by the markets. 5. Allowing currency to float freely under a unified exchange rate. 6. Opening up trade by lifting restrictions and utilizing standard but nominal tariffs instead. 7. Allow direct foreign investment. 8. Privatizing state-owned and controlled enterprises. 9. Abolish regulations that restrict competition but allow for prudent oversight. And 10. Develop and secure property rights. Thank you, 99. So the first thing you probably noticed is that many of these are pretty solid ideas, even today. Broadening a tax base, keeping debt ratios relatively low. Remember, these are countries that don't necessarily have the strength to consider MMT like developed sovereign currency nations and allowing for competitive forces. So through a 1989 or even a 2021 lens, there's a lot here that makes sense. And if you're a fan of capitalism or market economies, then it all sounds pretty normal. What the fuck is your problem? My problem is that the real-world implications of so many of these points have been somewhat disastrous, though it took years to understand why and how. Remember, as we moved away from direct interventions, economic intervention was the blanket that covered some of our more covert and sinister operations around the world. We gave the example in our 9-11 episode of how Kissinger applied a tourniquet to the Chilean economy to bring about a, quote, coup climate. The Washington Consensus, though not a policy document, became the policy rationale to do some pretty terrible things, first in Latin America and then across the globe. This court is now in session. In the case of Latin America versus the United States, how does the defendant plead? The defense enters a plea of not guilty by way of Washington Consensus. Order in the court. You're free to go, because you're the U.S., and no one is willing to hold you accountable. Dismissed. Before we jump ahead to understand how this policy statement was effectuated, let's go back and talk about where the world was when we hit consensus, especially in Latin America. We have an upcoming show planned on isms and all of the mystery that surrounds them. Socialism, communism, capitalism, neoliberalism, libertarianism. Not to mention the ism that I personally subscribe to. What's that, Manny? Handsomeism. Moving on. Instead of talking political structures and ideology, for this discussion, I think it's more appropriate to boil it down to two systems of organization. The market economy versus the centrally planned economy. 
Most of Latin America operated under centrally planned economies leading into the 1980s. Essentially, this is a very top-down structure where a central authority plans and organizes the economy, everything from price and wage setting, allocation of goods and resources, and interest rates. Decisions aren't made based upon features such as supply and demand or prevailing rates. Rather, they're made by setting deliberate targets. Most economists will tell you that this is a pretty lousy way to build an economy, and political agents have made careers out of savaging this approach, painting it as communism, socialism, authoritarianism, etc. And they're not entirely wrong, but like most topics we discuss, there's more to it than just that. For example, Cuba is a centrally planned economy that has extremely high literacy rates and complete access to health care. I'm not making a judgment call for or against this system, merely pointing out that depending upon the measurements that are most meaningful to a society, economic output might not be the only concern. Likewise, China had a centrally planned economy throughout its highest growth decades, and to a large extent it still does, though it's moving through a slow market transition. Venezuela did as well, and found incredible success with anti-poverty programs, though it was entirely too dependent on its fossil resources, and of course we did our best to undermine everything that they were doing, etc., etc. Russia, same story. So you can exist in the world with this type of economy, and depending upon your scale of measurement, it works to varying degrees. On the other side of the equation, you have market economies. These are the dominant economies in the world. North America, Europe, Japan, some African countries, and even China to an extent, all operate within a market system where consumers drive production, countries have access to global supply chains, and capital markets are rich and ever-flowing. For those unfuckers who have greater depth in this field or pitch fuckers who joined us from Pitchfork Economics, you'll know that there are no pure examples of either type of system, just shades and degrees. For example, the U.S. likes to hold itself out as a pure free market economy, but it relies heavily on subsidies, price fixing, and even military support for our economic gains. But this too is for another day. The idea here is to set the table for what Latin America was like before the Washington consensus years, the two decades between 1980 and 2000, to discuss its transition away from it in the past two decades and what we can learn from both periods. Essentially, each Latin American country was experiencing a transition during the 1970s and 80s from authoritarian rule under central military commands to outright dictatorships such as Perón and Argentina. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Like most countries, the 70s were fraught and raucous. Inflation was rampant due to the oil crisis and several of the world's biggest economies struggling to recover from the shock of Nixon's sudden withdrawal from Bretton Woods. It's amazing how pivotal these years were as we covered in the Fuck Milton Friedman episode. Even though it was brief, developed nations were really thrown for a loop when inflation, in some cases hyperinflation, took hold. It took decades to build the case for Keynesian policies and only a few short years to throw them completely out the window. We've discussed at length the direction the U.S. moved in during this period with the introduction of Reaganomics, which essentially melded together the philosophies of Milton Friedman and every high school bully that you've ever known. And we know that the United States pushed its way through this with monetary interventions such as massive currency manipulation and high interest rates. But there was another less talked about aspect of our recovery in the 1980s through the 90s, and that's the accumulation of resources and access to cheap labor. And Latin America was central to our exploits. In a white paper titled The Washington Consensus Assessing a Damaged Brand by Nancy Birdsall, Augusto de la Torre, and Felipe Valencia Casido, the authors detail the positive and negative impacts of our policy towards Latin America and the Caribbean. Here's a passage that offers a terrific summary. The economic and social pain involved in the adjustment process of the 1980s was immense, so much so that the period became known as the lost decade. As capital inflows abruptly stopped and terms of trade deteriorated sharply, the region was forced to shift from an aggregate external current account deficit of almost $2 billion in 1981 to a surplus of more than $39 billion in 1984. This was induced by major currency devaluations and severe restrictions on imports, including vital capital and intermediate goods, which implied a dramatic erosion of real wages and living standards. To put the fiscal accounts in order, countries embarked on deep and highly disruptive expenditure cuts, which hit disproportionately social and infrastructure investment programs. End quote. So, we weren't alone in intervening, again to positive and negative degrees. The International Monetary Fund was at the center of resolving the debt crisis, and in doing so, it exacted punitive measures in return for financing from Latin countries during the crisis. In order to qualify for relief from the IMF, 
nations had to essentially forego most of their domestic projects related to social welfare and infrastructure. And though the IMF claims the opposite, because they also mandate funds to be poured into higher education and healthcare, which they did, but they rarely worked as they were intended to. For example, the real benefit of funding education in a country where the population is disenfranchised, impoverished, and illiterate is at the parochial level and not higher ed. Early education programs are far more beneficial in the long run than funding greater access to education among elites. That's just one corollary that we've come to understand over time. It wasn't until the late 1980s when then-Secretary of the Treasury Nicholas Brady introduced a program that became known as the Brady Bonds. A faltering Latin America didn't help anyone, and foreign investors were wary of picking up the slack the IMF couldn't handle. So Brady introduced longer-term bonds with pretty decent yields and backed by U.S. Treasuries. That was the key. Investors flocked to the program, and it did allow several Latin American nations to refinance their debts, with the last of them being paid off in the early 2000s. But even the Brady program was unveiled with the understanding that participating countries would continue on the path of market liberalization, thereby opening up the pathways to foreign investment into formerly privatized enterprises. As countries became more intent on paying down debt and less focused on building social welfare programs and infrastructure, they eventually reverted back into the growth traps that had previously haunted them. So let's talk in broad strokes about what went right, what went wrong, how Latin America has fared in the post-Washington consensus era, and finally, what we can borrow from this period as we move forward. First off, I'm going to hand the mic to dear Uncle Noam in a moment, because part of what went wrong was a prolonged period of missed opportunities. Latin America is often pitted against the so-called tiger economies in Southeast Asia, specifically South Korea, Vietnam, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And the rationale being that they were similarly situated coming out of the debt crisis with the tiger economies theoretically performing better over a period of decades. Uncle Noam? Latin America has always the reason has, has much better basis for development than East Asia did. Has resources, you know, uh, uh, no enemies, no external enemies, uh, everything. Uh, but uh, imports to Latin America were luxury goods. Imports to East Asia were capital goods. The East Asian tigers, as they're called, controlled uh, technology, uh, directed investment, and so on. Uh, Latin America was uh, just in, in the hands of uh, foreign, uh, foreign investors and domestic elites. Essentially, the tiger economies had different suitors and less punitive extractions for support. And they focused on what Chomsky calls capital resources, and they controlled the flow of investment into manufacturing, distribution, technology, etc. Whereas Latin American countries imported luxury goods from the United States and were prohibited from directing the type of investments that would have promoted manufacturing growth over time. So during this period, there are a few positive outcomes that gave the appearance of unquestionable neoliberal success. Most of the Latin American countries were able to beat back inflation and open their economies to free trade. Of course, so did almost every other country on the planet. And countries like the Dominican Republic and Chile outperformed their counterparts for many, many years on key measures like GDP growth. And whether the two are correlated or not, it was also a period when most Latin American countries finally broke free of military-style dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. I want to put an asterisk on this point to return to it at a later date, but for today this will do. Ultimately, however, this era also marked a protracted period of rising inequality, destruction of the middle class, and loss of state-owned enterprises able to keep high levels of capital within the system. Forced austerity further suppressed the poor and lower classes, all in service of beating back inflation and inviting foreign capital investments into newly privatized enterprises. In all, it was a solid rebuke of centrally planned economies, though it exacerbated the living conditions of so many at the bottom rungs of society. According to the ECLAC, which is the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, it's a UN commission, the period between 1980 and 2000, the bookends for the Washington Consensus period, saw an increase in the percentage of poor people in urban areas from 29% to 37%, and an increase among rural poor from 59% to 63%. For persons living in what it terms absolute poverty, the percentages also increased from 10% to 11.5%, and 32% to 38% in these respective areas. 
In an essay titled Neoliberal Meltdown and Social Protest, Carlos Vilas concludes, quote, The accumulation of negative balances in foreign accounts fed into a growing undervaluation of the exchange rate, which in turn further contributed to the creation of larger external deficits. The exhaustion of the privatization process marked the end of the period of steady inflows of foreign currency. Access to the amount of foreign exchange needed to feed the convertibility scheme relied on the capacity for further borrowing in capital markets that were only accessible at higher interest rates as the level of indebtedness steadily grew. End quote. Now, there's one big head fake that neoliberals point to during this period to prove their case that opening up Latin America and Caribbean economies was a good thing overall, the most widely accepted economic marker of progress or decline, and that's GDP growth. So being brutally honest, Latin America was definitely in big trouble at the beginning of the 1980s. Much of this stemmed from the Mexican debt crisis, which set off a wave of cascading crises in Latin American debt markets. The net effect of this crisis that spread throughout Latin America was rapidly declining GDP, worsened by dramatic inflationary pockets. So when GDP began to recover toward the late 80s and remained mostly positive into the 90s, it was seen as a clear victory for the free markets. But widen the lens a bit, and it shows that GDP recovered from the depths of the debt crisis, but over the next 20 years, it still never approached the growth rate of the 1970s when most Latin American countries still existed under centrally planned economies. Another great essay called The Harvest of Neoliberalism, authors Jose Bellara and Delia Luisa Lopez quote a study by Pablo Gonzalez Casanova that says, quote, Neoliberal policies have definitely contributed to increasing the transfers of surplus from the periphery to the center, thanks to interest rates and debt payments, the declining terms of exchange, and the high level of profits remitted back to foreign capital investors. All of this has taken place at a far greater magnitude during the latest phase of capitalist globalization. According to Gonzalez Casanova, the number of countries that transferred net assets to the developed countries rises to 41 from Africa, 23 from Asia, 9 from Central and Eastern Europe, 10 from the Middle East, and 32 from Latin America and the Caribbean, end quote. So I really like the idea of calling this a harvest. The dust rose from the fields and sifted down from the sky. It settled on the ruined corn, piled up on the tops of fence posts and on the wires. A harvest is exactly what it was, and it's the best way to look at this period of economic experimentation. Some good seeds were planted, like the expansion of markets to focus on trade infrastructure, the Brady Bonds to refinance sovereign debt. And 99 has it in my head now that I should be singing the Brady Bonds, the Brady Bonds. So that's on her. Then there were invasive species that crept in, like foreign investors that sucked out profits or the destruction of social welfare programs at the behest of lending bodies. Then there's the greatest sin of harvest that any farmer will tell you. Overproduction and saturation. Every crop needs tending and soil needs to recover. If you don't care for these things, eventually the soil turns fallow and unproductive. And in many ways, that's what happened in the 2000s. Profits were sucked out, social institutions were ignored, wealth accumulation occurred at the top, but not at the bottom, and the middle class was squeezed. Remnants of the Washington Consensus remain with us today, but mostly among conservative think tanks who are relying on an anachronistic playbook that is designed to feed American interests primarily. And we've begun to move on, at least where Latin America is concerned. In fact, the past two decades have been a really interesting ride. Now, before we get to that and talk about the big aha moment that I had putting this together, I wanted to revisit the words of John Williamson, lest I leave the impression that he belongs in the fuck Milton Friedman camp. Upon his retirement, Williamson gave an address in which he spoke to the legacy of the Washington Consensus. I'm going to let his words do the work here for a minute. The Washington Consensus, as I originally formulated it, was not written as a policy prescription for development. It was a list of policies that I claimed were widely held in Washington to be widely desirable in Latin America as of the date the list was compiled, namely the second half of 1989, end quote. So this reaffirms what we were talking about up top. Williamson wasn't creating a policy prescription. He was reflecting on what he believed to be the prevailing wisdom of the era. And in this, I think he was spot on. 
And when asked to reflect upon his feelings regarding those who did indeed take this as policy and not as reflection, he takes issues with certain pathways and stands by others. Here he is again in his own words. Quote, the last decade has witnessed accumulation of substantial evidence confirming that financial liberalization can yield a real social benefit in terms of an improved allocation of investment, but also that it can be dangerous. The series of crises that have engulfed so many developing countries are testimony to that. This seems to me to imply that the objective of liberalization indeed makes sense, but that it needs to be qualified in two important ways. One is in delaying capital account liberalization until many other reforms have been successfully completed. Since there was no call for capital account liberalization in my version of the Washington Consensus, I got that point right. Where I failed was in not emphasizing the need to accompany financial liberalization by the creation of appropriate supervisory institutions. End quote. So if we go all the way back to our capitalism episode on fuckers, you can find a deep parallel between what Williamson is describing and what Adam Smith regarded as a core tenant of the free market. A free market does not imply the absence of regulation. Rather, it requires it to function properly, freely, and competitively. By implementing favorable reforms to recently shattered central structures and forcing a market economy into nations that haven't constructed central banks or an enforceable regulatory framework, we fostered an environment that was ripe for the taking by us. In terms of the post-consensus period, the 2000s were pretty interesting. And it's amazing how many sources one can dig up on how poorly the Latin American economies have performed in the past two decades, mostly American resources. But once again, it all depends on your preferred measurement. For example, a report issued just last month titled Poverty in Latin America cited that the overall poverty headcount ratio throughout Latin America went down from 42.4% in 2003 to 29% in 2009. On the whole, Latin American countries, excluding Central America for a moment, broke free of the shackles of the United States and began working cooperatively amongst one another and expanded trade outside of the United States. Now, it has to be said that it is largely a fool's errand to track data holistically in Latin America because the circumstances in Bolivia, for example, barely correspond with those of the Dominican Republic or Guatemala. So on the whole, GDP growth slowed in the 2010s, but no more significantly than the United States, and largely due to the same issues related to the financial crisis, the cold that we spread throughout the world. And on balance, most Latin American nations were able to reduce inequality and improve living conditions among the poorest inhabitants. We have future episodes planned on Central America and the Caribbean, but I thought it was important to review a little history where the major South American economies are concerned. They're going to be interesting to watch, especially in response to the global pandemic and the ever-increasing threat of right-wing extremism that Brazil is experiencing under Bolsonaro. And now for the aha moment that I had putting this together and why I fucking love doing this show with you on fuckers. When it comes to economic matters, I am no Pollyanna. Don't think for a second that China, as an example, hasn't learned from our successes and mistakes. It's why they have a strong foothold in the African continent, are developing even stronger ties in the vacuum we're leaving in the Middle East, and how they've established their dominance in East Asia. I'm sure we'll be unpacking the Beijing consensus in years to come. Right now, the American political class would have you believe that China's growth and ever-increasing support in other nations is the single largest threat to our economic prowess and somehow even our liberty. It's not. As we work through in our Climate Industrial Complex episode, the real economic threat is doing nothing to create a resilient infrastructure that can endure extreme changes to weather patterns, failing to meet a net-zero carbon future well in advance of what we originally thought was required, and failing to foster a warlike competitiveness with our so-called adversaries to do the same. In case you've missed the reports that have been released even since the IPCC report we covered, the situation is way worse than we thought, and the IPCC report just fucking came out. Oh my fucking God, Jesus Christ, will you get to the aha moment already? Ah, sorry. Okay. The aha moment is that a free market economy cannot do any of this. For all of the progress that we've made, for all the technological advances in globalization, the market economy structure is wholly insufficient to tackle the threats we face. Brazil and Mexico are the largest producers of carbon dioxide emissions in Latin America, and they still rank well behind the top 10 producers. 
As the low-wage manufacturing center for the U.S. thanks to NAFTA, Mexico makes sense. Brazil, on the other hand, has done a singularly poor job at maintaining and preserving its natural resources for the better part of the last 50 years. Once held up as the poster child of democratization and progress, Brazil has regressed dangerously on almost every important measure required to slow the effects of climate change. Ironically, the reversion to more central controls, environmental stewardship, and the reduction of inequality by focusing on people rather than a narrow focus on GDP growth has placed several Latin American countries in a far better position than their developed counterparts to save the planet. Of course, our sins become everyone's problem. And that's the big takeaway. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently lauded many of the Latin American and Caribbean nations for their leadership on climate initiatives, saying the world should heed their example. If China, the United States, Russia, Canada, and India don't get their shit together, we're all fucked. And as we pointed out in the climate episode, the brunt of this will be borne mostly by nations that had little to do with it. And so I'm also not Pollyannish, by the way, when it comes to the economies today of Latin America. Most of them were hammered by the pandemic and are struggling to get back on their feet, highlighting the fragility of a region that has yet to find the right economic playbook to fit the various cultures, natural resources, and opportunities that exist. But again, it all depends on the measurements you value. If slower growth, less inequality, and less harm to the environment are something to value, then maybe, spoiler alert, maybe we don't have all the answers. In order to battle climate change, we might have to go back in time and learn from the centrally planned economies. The only possible way that we have a chance to move the needle is to consider massive intervention into our own economy through stringent regulations, clean energy subsidization, and, dare I say it, nationalizing key elements of our energy infrastructure to move away from the 7,000 independent utility operations in this country, a preposterous situation literally replicated by no other country on the planet. Unfuckers, we've been sucked in by the allure of free markets, free trade, and free will for so long, we can't see how much we've been imprisoned by them. It turns out some things aren't meant to be free. Fuck Milton Friedman. R.I.P. John Williamson. Change our measures of success. Here endeth the lesson. Ned! Ryerson! Hey, welcome back to Show Notes. Thank you. Nice to see you, 99. It's nice to see you as well. How was your week so far? Uh, fine. Really? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. Okay. Is there any stuff you want to get out, lay out to the unfuckers, and maybe they can, uh, you know, weigh in and help? <laughs> I'll save that for my therapist. All right. Well, we had a lot going on this week, you know, in that dark time between releases, not the least of which was a lot of feedback coming from the LGBTQ episode, which was really, really wonderful to hear. We'll get to some of that. We also had continuing feedback, as we said up top, regarding our new membership tiers, which is pretty awesome because we have a whole bunch of new members, which is just blowing my mind. And they sold out of our coffee. So we had to call Amy in a panic and uh, refill everything, which we did. We got it restocked. So we're ready to keep selling. But uh, I can't tell you how much it means to us and to them that you are supporting the show uh, on fuckers in the most amazing way possible. So thank you for the outreach. Thank you for the love. And let's get to uh, some of the things in the show today. First off, let's start with book love. I've quoted this book before, so I think it might have already been up in the uh, bookshop. If you go to, what is it? Bookshop? Say it again. Bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. You can find Imperialism, Neoliberalism, and Social Struggles in Latin America. It's a compendium of really, really quality essays about the Latin American struggle against neoliberalism. So we linked a, a number of the essays that were in there. There were also some other really terrific white papers that I referenced in this episode that are also linked in show notes and they're available on the website. And if you haven't checked it out, 99 has completely reorganized the website with episode-specific information. It's really terrific and really comprehensive. So well done, you. Thank you. So Podlove, we actually put together a list of podcasts that were suggestions from unfuckers who answered the call when we asked them if there was any LGBTQ 
friendly allyship or specific podcasts out there that do a really good job. So 99, you want to go through these? Sure. So we have a few, one by Brian G. He recommended this podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Best of the Left? Be, uh, hmm. That, I got to tell you, ring. Nope, never yeah, heard of it. I don't think so either. But it seems like they did an episode back in June called The Liberation and Assimilation of Pride Month. So Brian said that was a great episode. And then Sid F. recommended Gender Reveal. And this podcast has a starter pack page, which is a handful of their favorite episodes sorted into a series of curated lists. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. So if like you don't that. know where to start, you just go to this page that I've linked in the show notes and you can kind of choose your journey. And then this last one was recommended by Timor S., which was Mati in Space. So it's not a specifically focused LGBTQ podcast, but Timor said they focus a lot on these issues in their general oeuvre. Ooh, just drop some French on us. Yeah, I know like six words. Well, thank you for that. Hey, Unfuckers, thank you for uh, the support. Of course, I'm kidding about Best of the Left in Brian's message. He also said that Jay has a very, very long catalog and long history of documenting issues uh, related to the community and does an amazing job, and they consider him a terrific ally. And Jay's really an ally of all things. Jay and Amanda from Best of the Left. I, I have a favor to ask of anybody that listens to Best of the Left, or if you don't listen, please go over there now, probably toward the end of the year, uh, but there's never a bad time to start. Going to go through a membership drive. If you do not have a membership to Best of the Left, please do support that show. It's Jay. It's Amanda. They have couple people working on the show as well. Their crew is tireless. And if you have the wherewithal to do so, please support their show by taking out a membership to Best of the Left. They're really great friends. And as we've often said, without them, we are not. So appreciate you, Jay and Amanda. And let's keep going. We have coffee donations. Nathan S. said, thank you so much for what you're doing. I learned something every week. Laura bought five coffees. Love the fucking content. Adore your fucking sense of humor. Unsure about the fucking F-bombs. Peace. Ray became a member. Welcome to the club. Was introduced to the podcast by Busto. M. Busto! From the O Canada episode. Immediately hooked. Cool. Glad to have you as a member. Steve NC also became a member and said, you fuckers are awesome. No, Steve, you are. Shan from Canada became a member. So many new members. 99. This is fucking crazy. Shan from Canada said, love your pod. So much dense information. Enjoy the palate cleansers. Didn't have one today, no. uh, but I have, a, I think, a real fun one for next week. So uh, I definitely need the laughs these days. Good luck in unfucking your troubled country. Yeah, thanks. We need all the help we can get. Sam C. became a member. This podcast is hands down the best. Ruined it for others. And fuck Ronald Reagan. So Sam, sorry we ruined it for everybody else. Sorry, not sorry. Bookstore Kim. Wait, 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 wait. You, you skipped over what? the best part of I'm Sam's sorry. message. Okay, we're off. I must mention you. Mm -hmm. Max and Manny were already an amazing team, but adding 99 has really been a stroke of genius. I anxiously await each weekly episode and honestly was super jacked to get to this week. <laughs> You're getting a lot of love on this show. I know. It's so weird. It's so cool, right? I don't understand it. I, I love that. You know, I hate in some ways it's anonymous, but I love that so many people across this country and other countries get to see the wonderful you for who you are. It's really weird. Just like I do. I can't, I can't rub my head around it. It's pretty great. <laughs> now, Bookstore Kim, as you heard up top, became a very serious member of the show. She is a pro, if I'm not mistaken, right? And Sam C. was our unfucking insane. Oh, that's right. Yes. yes. Uh, so you'll be hearing Sam's name a lot. Because every, every week. Every single week, and, because he is sponsoring the show. And we can hear your name, too, if you just become an unfucking insane member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. But you'd have to be unfucking insane to do that, right? All of our unfuckers are, aren't they? Fair. Bookstore Kim became a member. Uh, UNFTR inspired me to action. Just held a progressive party caucus in my town, Wheelock, Vermont, where I serve as justice of the peace and auditor. Dig this, unfuckers. I will no longer be running as a Democrat, but as a progressive. Small steps. Thanks for waking me up. FMF, FRM. That's real change. This is where it starts. And Bookstore Kim, I remember, she owns an independent bookshop. That's right. So if you're ever in Wheelock, Vermont, we got to stop through. I mean, it might be second on the list after Outagami went on our national tour. And also the whole The of whole Australia. of Australia, yes. Yeah. Clearly the whole of Australia. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever come back from Australia, though. Darling Mickey became a member as well. Thank you so much for doing this. She's also known as the Witch on Weed. Love you guys. You've taught me so much. I share as much as I can. Thank you for all you do. 
We had a few shout-outs on Facebook as well this week. Uh, Roger S. said, always impressed. CJL said, particularly important episode for me. I have a hard time with all the letters past L and G and am 100% certain it's because of the social norms I grew up with. I have 12-year-old twins, both going through the process of exploring their own natures and how they will eventually identify themselves. It's fascinating, even if I don't understand it. This episode helped me with the language of it and helps me engage with them where they are. I've listened to it a few times, even had them listen for their thoughts. CJ, that's a really, really powerful, thoughtful expression. Also, clearly the reason that we put it together. We had a few, uh, we'll probably get to them, but we had a few people that reached out and were like, this is uh, kind of one-on-one shit for us. If you're doing the work, you've been doing the work. And if you're in the community, this is all the kind of stuff you know, and you've been wrestling through these issues for years. But thanks for acknowledging that and beginning to work through the process yourself because it's an important journey. But it was really intended for, I guess, the CJs of the world because it was sort of like me working it out, listening to other people that are further down the road. You know, and I consulted a lot with 99, who's really been doing a lot of this work in her own life for many, many years. So I really appreciate everybody letting me work through that. But again, it's just a baseline. It's just a baseline. Even though I called it an adjacent episode to our core issues, I do so because we have to, you know, indoctrinate ourselves with the new language of progressivism to make sure that we're all sharing this language. So thank you. Tony K reached out to correct us on something, which I really, really appreciate. Tony K, thank you for taking the time. Says, uh, as to the term, quote, lifestyle, that's one of the bigger trigger terms that invariably signals a clueless homophobe, either friendly or antagonistic, which connotes that sexual orientation is a decision, like what kind of car to buy, whereas to our community, we have lives, not lifestyles. Very well said. Very well stated, Tony. Thank you for taking the time to reach out to us. Nettie said, uh, Alex asked, do you think if we create a local brew and name it Unfucking the Republic, it will be enough incentive to bring the whole crew, Manny, Max, and 99, to Outagami? I told him to get on it. This one made my heart stop. <laughs> um, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, love, so emphatically, I yeah. love craft beer. Uh, I mean, who doesn't? But if there was an Unfucking the Republic beer, oh my God. I would die. Yeah, I'd lose my mind. You know, podcasts go on the road. And we are nowhere near the size that would be able to consider doing that. But we're working on it. We have some campaigns that we're going to be running in, you know, post our anniversary launch that hopefully will help us expand our network a little bit. The bigger we get, the more you keep spreading the love, the greater we can finance the show. Hopefully, I mean, it's our dream to take it on the road. Let me just say that. And it is 100% sure and certain that if we do take this on the road, we are beginning in Outagami. That is 100% a fact. Now, Christian G, in some ways, your podcast has helped me feel not so isolated in the world. 99 parentheses, my fave and Max have taught me so much. It made me feel a sense of community I didn't have before living in Arkansas, <laughs> Arkansas. I love you guys. Keep working hard in FMF. Christian G, we got you. Got your back. Especially your fave. Mm-hmm. 99. Yeah. Bill L grew up less than two miles away from the Poospatuck Reservation. And understanding the inner workings there was limited at best. That is an interesting factoid about the communities that surround some of the reservations, particularly out on Long Island. The ones that that I used to report on upstate sometimes were actually engines, the economic engines of their community. So there was a greater awareness of what was going on there, but still not an awareness of the different political machinations that exist within tribal culture, which is pretty cool. So glad you reached out, Bill. Nathan E said, love Cried many times during this episode, listening to the passion in their voices. Bought three bags because I want to taste the real deal. So talking about our episode with Amy and Harry. And I think hopefully next season we'll bring them back for a little bit. Just give some updates. We do have a couple more blends planned. Uh, planned. We have a planned. new planned. We have a new blend coming out in, um, I'll say. TBD. Q4 and whole bean coming as well. So really exciting stuff. On the Twitters, Midwest Monster said the best coffee on earth is unfuck your morning from UNFTR pod. If you disagree, you're fucking wrong. And I do not disagree. That is uh, that is my favorite. Oh, no. You know what? I do disagree. Un- unfuck your afternoon, Midwest Monster. Looks like we have to fight. As long as it's one of our coffees, I think it, we can call it even. Okay, fair. Higher Skullbeard said, for a scathing analysis of our buddy Milt and his impact on society, check out UNFTR pod. Yes, do so indeed. Roton Rick. Y'all are amazing. As the proud father of a proud gay man, I want to thank y'all for this episode and doing your best to educate the masses. Well, you are welcome and thank you. Bish shows so- a splash of socialism. I even separated the Sorry, words for you. Sorry, you did. I know. I'm, I suck. Mm-hmm. 
Splash of Socialism. I got my coffee sampler in the mail yesterday, and it is delicious. Definitely buying more. Glad you dig it, Splash of Socialism. On Instagram, Mistress of Mischief, Ms. Trish. Got my first bag and played this podcast while I percolate and drank it. Ooh, all of the unfucking experiences just like mashed in there at once. That is wholesome goodness right there. Uh, the only thing that would make it better is if she had that coffee on the corner of College and Appleton, standing <laughs> next to, to Nettie, protesting outside and out of Gammy. Perhaps we need to make a tumblers, travel tumblers. Ooh. They can take their UNFTR blends on the road. Unfuckers, would you do that? Would you buy those? We could do that, right? Uh, and, uh, what, you're Oh, that you was, okay? sorry. Yeah, no, I, keep going. I think 99 just had a stroke. Are you, <laughs> everything okay? Yes. I forgot to include someone on last week, and I wanted to make sure I got them, and then I had a bunch of Instagram requests in our inbox, and I got overwhelmed. Do you want to call out who that is? Yes, it was Rona Bird on Instagram Ooh. shared their coffee. They got decaf and unfuck your afternoon. So oh, dig it. Thank you for sharing a photo. I love the photos. Whenever I see them, I will repost them. Cool. And Chip W30. Also ordered the first coffee, and it should be there in a few days. I hope by the time you're hearing this, Chip, you have it. A couple of emails to go over before we uh, call it a day. Brian G., thank you for your recent episode on LGBTQ issues. As a gay man, I enjoyed your take on the politics of LGBTQ rights, but the topic is so broad, a single 45-minute episode doesn't do it justice. That is the truth. Many of the issues you cover, however, and your podcast also affect our community, but with an interesting queer spin that adds a level of complexity difficult for outsiders to understand. A good example is police reform and the Black Lives Matter movement. Even though the founders of BLM are all queer women of color and our community has its own history of being targeted and harassed by police, there is still a lot of hostility among mostly white gay men to their activism. Those of us with a grasp of history find that attitude bewildering, but even a community like ours with a history of activism can have its blind spots. I'll just leave that right out there where it is. So well said. Unfuckers are so goddamn smart I can't take it. Stephen W., said the outro is just playing on the LGBTQIA plus episode at the end and I got a little misty eyed, not because I'm part of the community, but because I'm endeavoring to learn everything that I can to be a great ally to my small handful of friends who identify that way. Allison D, I have a degree in linguistics and I'm also bi, so you can probably imagine this one was especially interesting. Allison goes on to say, bi and trans and non-binary and intersex and queer people all have a lot of problems with erasure. It's gotten better recently, but because of this erasure, Bi and trans people were not included in a lot of the laws supporting lesbians and gays. This is because we haven't always been included in the conversation. For example, it is still legal in my state to fire me or deny me housing for being bi because we specifically weren't included in the laws protecting lesbians and gays. Each group also has a whole separate set of issues that still aren't well addressed, including discrimination within the LGBTQIA community. Thank you for that message. That's a conversation that needs to continue within the community. But I appreciate you bringing that to me so that I can bring greater awareness to the public. And again, I just want to reinforce that we appreciate everyone's patience because we're not always there on the journey and we're just going along on it and you're helping us. So bringing it back, Jeremy B. Just want to uh, send a thank you to Jeremy B. for reprinting our 9-11 episode in uh, Jeremy's journal. Much appreciated. Daniel M., this unfuckingly fine coffee business is absolutely amazing because it's a start at bringing the first people back to their rightful place at the table. It's not a cash reparation, which they deserve, but it provides a path of healing. I, I couldn't agree more. It's why we do it. All good stuff there, Daniel. Thanks for pointing it out. Simba reached out and said that the dignity and humility and indeed the humor of Harry and Amy in the show was a sheer joy to experience. Furthermore, I loved hearing about how much love and forethought goes into the whole process from the bean selection to making sure that Big Mama knows that she's loved and being looked after. Big Mama is the roasting machine that all of our unfucking delicious beans go through. And what Simba's referencing there is how Amy literally looks over every batch. I watched her do this. She literally puts her hand on Big Mama and says, okay, Big Mama's ready. She is one with this machine. It's pretty cool. We want to thank uh, the single person who gave us a review this week. Come on, unfuckers. I mean, they were too busy buying us coffee. Yeah, maybe. And buying coffee. That's true, too. So it's like, I can be mad, but also I could be thankful. That's and I'm right. choosing thankful today. Well, unfuckers have a number of ways to get in touch with us and, and to support the show. One is by joining our Substack for free at unftr.substack.com. It's always going to be free, never going to gate that content. It's where all of the essays go out. And, you know, in our anniversary month, it's where we're going to be sending out our discounts and updates about the coffee store and stuff like that. Or you can leave us a review like Donata Jean did. Donata's here because Jay sends us to you on every episode. He's amazing. So I figure you would be. 
I agree with that as well. Thank you, Donata, for sending us a five-star review. You can also support us by buying our coffee at unftr.com. You can support the show by becoming a member at Buy Me a Coffee at... I'm just doing it yeah. ahead of it. Yeah, I am. Okay. Is that okay? I mean, it's I mean, fine. I, I don't... What? I, I didn't mean to... I don't want to get you mad right I'm, at the end of the... I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Hey, baby girl faces. Yeah? Um, I have to go to Outagamie County. Okay. Where the heck is that? I don't know. I'm supposed to know. Um, somewhere in America. Is that cool with you? Well, why are you going there? Beer? Well, that makes sense. Safe travels. The show is lovingly produced and curated by The Great 99. I love looking at you and putting you on the spot at this point in the show. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> really? You're not prepared for this? No. I keep doing it and you're not prepared? Well, I don't know what to say. Well, now who's disappointed? Me? Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. We have some new stuff from Tom coming out pretty soon, by the way. Yay. But I want to surprise you guys with it. The show is hosted by the Phantom of the Opera and distributed by Three Blind Mice. Send us your comments, your questions, your tired, your poor, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. Read our essays on unftr.substack.com. Remember, always free. Take care, 99. We'll see you next week for the big show, the anniversary Ooh. show. Are we going to have like a like an Oscars intro? It's possible. What's that guy? The guy who was like, we saw your tits and everyone was like, wait, don't do that. Oh. Seth MacFarlane. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know I'm old, so I'm thinking more Billy Crystal. I know you were. <laughs> I know you were. Or uh, the end. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Now, last week in our LGBTQ episode, we referenced the Stonewall Inn protest and talked about how it plays an important role in the LGBTQ movement. <clears throat> now I'm Trudeau. <laughs> the Brady Bonds. Who's Alice? Janet Yellen. 